Hi, I'm Emily Abbott, the founder of The Brain Possible. We've created this space, our website, and this podcast to offer hope, to explore possibility over limitations, and to create community for families of exceptional children like yours. And we're doing just that, one connection at a time. Here on this podcast, we'll begin another. We're so happy that you're taking this journey with us. I always love talking with fellow mama warriors, strong women who fiercely advocate for their children, who are constantly asking, what can be next for my child and going in that direction? Recently, we spoke with Denise Smith of Wellness Beyond the Spectrum, and today we'll be speaking with Lindsay Bachman to learn about her family. Lindsay and her husband, Pete, raised their two daughters, Chandler and Landry, on a farm in central Illinois. In June of 2020, Landry, their youngest, was diagnosed with an ultra-rare genetic disorder called CHAMP1. At the time, she was only the 68th person worldwide with this diagnosis. Through partnership with other families and the CHAMP1 Research Foundation, they are on a mission to raise awareness, advocate for inclusion, celebrate diversity, and ultimately to find a treatment. The context for this episode is to hear from Lindsay about the maternal gut instinct and the importance of trusting in it and yourself to know your child better than anyone else. Also, our listeners will discover about the CHAMP1 gene mutation and what researchers know and what they have yet to discover about it. Let's just start with this question. You share your story so beautifully on your new blog, Loving Landry Jess. Can you start from beginning back when you just knew something was not right with Landry's development? Sure. Landry was born in March of 2019. And I would say around the two to three month mark, her two month checkup was when I first brought anything up to our pediatrician. And it was something as simple as I thought I was seeing a lazy eye type look. It was kind of brushed off by the pediatrician at that point, just saying we'd check back in at four months. And then at the three-month mark, I noticed, and it all really started with her eyes. No eye contact from Landry, no tracking, nothing that she really should, those big things that she really should be doing. She wasn't. So that's kind of what started it all. And I noticed it myself, obviously, as her mom. But it was kind of when like my, I'm very close to my mom and she spends a lot of time with my girls. She brought it up and, and things like that. Some, some people who weren't with her every single day, but were with her enough to notice a problem very, you know, lovingly and nicely, but w- mentioned it to me. And so then I kind of realized that we, we really kind of were, something wasn't quite right. And then it was her four month well baby checkup that her pediatrician was just right on the ball. I went in with a list of questions and concerns and I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to bring it out. She caught right on and it all started with, with the eyes. It was, she didn't see her tracking anything. She didn't follow, you know, me or, or her or anybody. And that's, that's kind of when the ball started rolling. Mm -hmm. And she never, never reached those milestones. So, um, I think actually my first, and I blogged about this in one of I've only posted three times, but um, one of my first posts was my first experience with really advocating for Landry was I truly felt like there was an eyesight problem. 
I wasn't naive enough to think that it was our only problem, but I just really was not confident that she could see. And that was an area that I wanted to, to check out. Our pediatrician didn't agree, but she gave me the ophthalmology referral anyway. The referral, she wanted to start us with more neuro and genetics, which I didn't disagree with. I just really had this mom gut feeling that Landry couldn't see. And that's, that's hard to explain, but I know as a mom, you understand that feeling. So we did, we got that, we got that appointment and it was actually the first specialist that we saw. And lo and behold, um, Landry couldn't, I mean, she was so extremely farsighted, so much so that they only started her with half of her eyeglass prescription. Her tracking did get better and it has gotten better since. We still struggle with eye contact. We still struggle with a lot of those, you know, bigger things, but she has shown improvement. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the CHAMP1 gene mutation? So CHAMP is actually an acronym for the protein that that gene codes for or produces, and it stands for chromosome alignment maintaining phosphoprotein. So that's a protein that our kids, they're not producing that protein. And it's a protein that's essential for neurological development. So it just kind of encompasses a lot of, a lot of areas because they are missing such an essential building block protein. Mm-hmm. I, I have some questions about that, but I don't want to sound, I'm probably going to sound crazy. I want you to ask whatever you want to ask. This question's not on here, but I automatically was thinking, well, obviously they would know this, but I want to know, like, so you can't be adding in more of that protein? Does she just not? I have asked. So I want to explain this as best as I'm obviously I'm not medically trained. So the the disease structure is such that um, the one good copy of her gene does not produce enough protein to make up for the bad or mutated copy of the gene. So yes, there's potential for like a gene therapy or like, um, what's the word I'm like, I'm drawing a blank, but yes, there is. (laughs) I'm thinking about special diets. (laughs) I know, I know. And I think, you know, I'm one of the newer champ one parents and those that have gone before me and that I'm kind of thankful to be able to learn from. I know there are families who swear by whole foods and not, you know, not on processed foods, very natural, very holistic. And I, I think I've asked our pediatrician too about the gene therapy side of things. And his response to me was, because I said, I probably sound crazy or am I just fishing for ideas? Can you just give her a synthetic version of what she doesn't have? You know, in my mind, it should just be as simple as that. And our pediatrician said, that yes, gene therapy is a very up and coming field of medicine. And and who knows, I've said before that I'm very hopeful in a sense that Landry is only a year and a half old and we live in 2020 and who knows, you know, we don't know what potential treatments look like, or like I said, can we give her a synthetic version of the protein that our kids are not producing? Who knows, but no, nothing, nothing known at the moment. And they hadn't entertained any, every time you've brought up something like um, shared that, you you know, other people eating some whole foods diets, um, very natural. Do they just brush that off? I have not 
When it, when talking about research or potential treatments, I haven't had a very greater in-depth conversation with our pediatrician yet that would make me feel like he's very on board. I know he would um, just with any child speak to a healthy diet and an unprocessed natural whole food diet. But with Landry, it's also hard because she's not eating solids yet. She is, she'll be 20, what's today? Well, she was 20 months yesterday. That shows where time has gone. The 15th. And she still is is completely bottle-fed, a combination of just formula and oatmeal. So we don't really have a whole lot of leeway with her as far as diet goes yet. But I know that he would he would probably never discount that. But I don't know if he would put a whole lot of faith in it either. Yeah. And she just started holding her own bottle. Isn't that right? She did. Yep. Congratulations. Yep. Thank you. I did not even realize the freedom that was going to come with that for both her and and myself. You know, there have been times when I've been in the middle of something and I have to drop everything because she needs or wants to be fed and that's all that's going to console her and just to be able to hand her her own bottle. I mean, it's it's just great for both of us. Not that there's times that I don't want to still snuggle her up and feed her, but she needs that independence as much as I do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, it's a big step. It is. You literally use your hands like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. So back to champ and you call it champ sometimes for instead of champ one. Yes. Yes. Okay. So back to champ, it's incredibly rare so much so that Landry was only the 68th person worldwide to have it. Is that correct? Correct. What kind of research is being done to find out more about it? More than you would think for such a rare, a rare disorder. And that is fully in credit to our foundation, the founder of our foundation, his son, JJ is almost seven. And he spent, I believe, four years of his life with a cerebral palsy diagnosis before we before he got his correct diagnosis of the CHAMP1 mutation. And at that point, I want to say he was 30-something to have it. So, you know, less than half of what there are now. And his dad just really took off on the research front and has done a lot for our community we are. We currently have bloodlines at the Coriel Institute just for purposes of banking blood for research purposes. We're getting ready to collaborate on some very exciting things, one with the Simons Searchlight Foundation, and they're getting ready to create some special bloodlines for us that actually will mimic brain cells, which is really exciting. We have a rat model in process um, with the CHAMP1 gene disorder. We've been in talks with St. Jude. It's my understanding that they have a brand new neurological division or department. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. There's talks with Mount Sinai in New York. They have had success with a, a different gene and a different protein, but a very similar disease structure. And they actually did a clinical trial and found a drug that that helped those kids. So there's talks of doing something similar with us. There, there's a lot it, for, for as rare as it is, there's a lot of exciting things going on on the, on the research front. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Very exciting. And again, it, I've said before, you know, our kids are young, a lot of us and Landry is only, she's not quite two and it's 2020, almost 21 who knows what we'll find. I'm really hopeful as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. And 
How did your family come to terms with receiving Landry's diagnosis? Differently, all of us. (laughs) I think me, it was just relief. It was just a lot of relief. For me, I had been the one, and I do have a great supportive, hardworking husband, but I had been the one at every appointment, at every therapy session. You know, moms notice things that no fault of theirs, dads just don't you, you know, might not see as the primary caregiver, um, at least in our situation. So I just needed to know what we were working with. We had gone through so many what ifs when we started the road down genetic testing. And some of the first things that they tested for were just so devastating, you know, could have been potentially devastating to get those answers and to find out what we weren't working with was obviously encouraging, but then it just kept well, then what is it? What is it? What is it? And I had a conversation with a therapist friend who um, she said, there's some parents who are just okay living in denial and kind of blissfully unaware and never knowing. And then there's parents who will stop at nothing to find out what's going on. And I definitely am the second. So when we first got her diagnosis, it was, I can tell you, I was standing in my kitchen. It was a random Tuesday morning was the last thing I expected. I I thought that we could still be running her exome sequencing for another three months. We got it back in three months, which is fairly soon. And the, the geneticist called and she said, we have results. And it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like I've been waiting so long for this and here it is. But at the same time, she couldn't tell me anything about it. She had never heard of it. She herself said, she said, there's, you know, 50 some thousand genes and she, and, you know, in her career, she'll never know of them all. So this was her first experience with this. She gave me, she emailed me the genetic report and a couple papers on it and a list of about 10 potential characteristics. And that's it. (laughs) Again, I, I did just feel relief. I just had so much relief in knowing that we, what we were dealing with, but then you're like, okay, what now? Like I've been working at this and working at this now, what? And not only do we have an answer, but nobody's ever heard of it. So I kind of hit the ground running. I had had my head wrapped around the fact that something was going on. It was more than likely genetic and or neurological I had already processed all of that. I think my husband had a little bit of a harder time, but that's not to say he's not doing great with it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's usually to be expected that. Yes. (laughs) That everyone processes things so differently. I actually, the morning that we got her diagnosis, a friend was coming over with her five kids already had those plans and she walked in and I had just gotten off the phone and this is like my best friend. I set the phone down and I looked at her and I said, we have a diagnosis and we just talk about crazy timing, but, but she hugged me and it was like, she was happy. And we were both just happy that after all of this work and all of this searching, that part of it could stop. Yeah. What advice would you give to other parents who have a gut feeling that something is just not right with their child? Don't take no for an answer push and push and push until you are satisfied. And if that involves seeking out a different doctor, I've said this in a, in a blog post, I said it, 
it's not to say that they're not a great doctor. It's not to say that their advice might not work for another child or another family. It's just a straight fact that you might not be a good fit and don't stop until you find a good fit. I've been thankful every day that we started with a pediatrician that didn't waste any time. I've talked to parents who, you know, their doctors didn't start digging into anything until they had a 12 month old that couldn't sit up. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm thankful all the time that I was comfortable with a doctor who, who didn't waste any time. So I, I think that's my biggest thing. Go with your gut and don't, don't stop until you're satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is perfect. Perfectly said. <laughs> but it's also easier said than done sometimes. And I understand that too. It's a tough situation when you are relying on the experts or the people with the, the medical degree to tell you the answers and they don't know the answers all the time. How could they? So, and then sometimes you get the answers and they still don't know the answers. <laughs> like in your situation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, strange feeling. Our, our initial, our pediatrician that we started with, she moved away and I've missed her every day, but we, we have another great pediatrician. And our first one, I was just very close with, and I texted her the day that we got our diagnosis and she called me immediately. And of course she had not heard of champ one either, but she told me that day on the phone, she said, first of all, if anybody can do this, it's you. And she said, you will be the expert. You'll come in contact with people who don't medical professionals who don't have a clue what they're dealing with or what you're dealing with. And she said, you'll become the expert in it. And it really has been that way, which is scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a beautiful thing for her to say to you. It was, it was. And that was um, like the first major confidence building part of this that I needed to hear that from her. That is so true because so often that's all that parents need to hear. Mm -hmm. And, or, or humility, a little humility from them to ad admit for the geneticist to admit. Yes. There's how many genes? <laughs> like 50,000 some. Yeah. And, and she will never know them all. Mm -mm. And she will, and oh gosh, I just did this episode where I interviewed someone and, and they said it, they put it in this way for, for Landry. Landry has never been before. So we don't know. Right. <laughs> And even if they have grim details to share, to admit that Landry's never been before. Mm -hmm. Right, right. This is a first time for literally everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's emotional when I really stop and think about it. Mm, yeah, yeah. You're doing a beautiful job, though, over there. How did you advocate for Landry? And what advice would you give to other parents who are trying to be an advocate for their child? I think that there is, when I first started thinking about advocacy and the, the word advocate, I thought of somebody very forceful and almost rude. And, and that's not the answer. You can mean business without being rude. And I think that's one thing that I've really learned is that that balance. You know, you do walk into the room knowing more than 
doctors. And that could easily, that could make it easy to take the reins. And sometimes that's not what we need to do. But I think there's a fine line between putting your foot down, but doing it lovingly in a way that's going to get your point across and gracefully. You know, nobody, whether they know what you're talking about or not, is going to pay attention to a yelling, angry, belligerent parent. Um, and that's not that's not the answer. But it does take firmness. It does take confidence. It does take the ability to look into a doctor's eyes. And I've we had this just um, later in the summer. Landry was in the ER, and then she was eventually admitted for a five day stay. And two ER ER doctors walked in and said, what's this champ one thing? I've never heard of it. And I'm sitting there saying this acronym, you know, this big, long acronym of the pro of her disorder and to a doctor that's supposed to know these things. So it would be easy for that conversation to take a turn, but I think you need to, there's definitely a way to put your foot down and to be serious about it, but be graceful and humble and loving about it at the same time. And that's, what's really, that's when you're going to be taken seriously. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And just as you want them to speak to them as we would want them to speak to us. Exactly. Exactly. I don't want somebody cocky to walk in the room and just talk to me and not listen in return. And so I want to speak to somebody that way too. And I think, like I said, that's when you're taken the most seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. How is Landry doing now? She's great. She's uh, some progress that she's currently making. We're working so hard on crawling. She hates being in her hands and knees position. Absolutely hates it. But we are um, working with PT with some new compression suits. And that seems to be seems to be helping. She is still on 24 seven oxygen. We have times when we can take her off and I kind of know how to gauge that. But overall, she's doing she's doing great. She's she's happy. She's starting to show us a little bit more of, you know, personality traits. She's getting some spice and some spunk and that's fun fun to see. My 5-year-old is she's feisty. <laughs> and so I'm starting to see some of that in Landry and those are those are nice qualities to see when for so long you didn't know what made her happy or you didn't know what she liked or didn't like. And so, so to start displaying some of those preferences and feelings is really special. Yeah. It makes you, uh, well, it made me, when I would see things like that, appreciate so much more of those little things. Absolutely. That, you know, we all take take for granted in another situation, or maybe, maybe you did with your first, I, I don't know, but for, I, I realized I had, um, my first and then my second had a traumatic brain injury. And then after that, I had went on to have three more children. And so right after I had my next healthy child after Carter, it, it all was just so fascinating, every little thing. And, and then I got used to it again, you know, the, the typical developing children. Right. <laughs> you said perfectly what I feel so often. I, I hate to look back and think I took so much for granted the first time around because it was a textbook version of how things were supposed to happen. And I didn't know anything different. And I, and I did not 
know to appreciate and see the beauty in a, and there's beauty in everything, of course, but in a typically developing child, I didn't know truly what a miracle that is. And I've, I've told friends and my husband, I said, I feel like I need to have one more just so I know what I know how appreciate how much I need to appreciate and, and take that, take that in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a different feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can handle one more. Don't quote me on that yet, but um, the feeling is there and that's why. <laughs> hey, I do not blame you at all. <laughs> I have four living children now and a puppy and I don't know how I don't lose my mind. I don't but either. Then, you know, <laughs> but then I, I remember too. Yeah. What we just talked about, my, my son passed away eight years ago. And as time goes on, I forget those feelings and I don't want to forget them, but exactly what you're saying of just appreciating every little thing. And I think I sh- I need to do a heck of a lot more appreciating the typically developing, sometimes annoying things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The mom, mom, mom. <laughs> right. Yeah. But then it's like, who knows when Landry will say mom. So I have one child that says it and I need to be that much more thankful for it because I don't know when I'll hear it from the other. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> well, speaking of the siblings, how do you balance raising one child with a genetic disorder and one neurotypical child? Not well. Sometimes I feel like I, I must say Chandler, my five-year-old, she's amazing. She is compassionate. She loves her sister. She is her biggest fan. And I, she makes it easy, but sometimes I think she makes it too easy. I think she just goes with the flow so much and enjoys helping and being with her sister so much that I forget how much she really goes through. I do try really hard to, to get some special one-on-one time, but sometimes I don't feel like that's enough, you know, because it's like, she needs one-on-one time. I need alone time. And, um, (laughs) it's like, how does everybody get what they need? And some days I don't feel like I do that very well. It that's balance has probably been the hardest, one of the hardest things for me. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar, you know, I, I think about that a lot as well because my oldest, she was almost five when her, her little brother passed away. He was almost two. Okay. And, and she just went with the flow. And as soon as he was born, which she was about two. uh, And when he was born, her life just changed and she adapted. And that is how our personalities, that's how we come to be and express ourselves. Eventually we look, if you look back and study your life, you can figure out when it was that we each became our strongest personality traits. The one thing about it is it's going to happen one way or another, no matter what. So if it's not that, it's going to be something else. That t- if that makes any sense to you. It does. It does. And I, I see that in her, but I, I also pray that she doesn't just go with the flow so much that she's not able to tell me or tell anybody in the future, this is what I need. This is what I need from you. And so trying to help her see what she, what she needs. And that might be me by myself. Sometimes that might be time away from her sister. I hope that I can help her speak to those things. Yeah. Wow. 
That is a definitely a conversation I think that we should dig into more probably on our blog and, and hear from people more about because I think it's so important. Um, and I could talk to some psychologists about that too, because it's so important to figure out how to support those those kids who are just becoming so accommodating. But we still want them. And, and that's lovely that they might grow up to be like such a helper and right. so accommodating. But, you know, it's a burden to bear one day. They have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Right. And I've thought so far as like the very far future, what what are Landry's future adult needs going to be? What What's going to happen when we're not here to to provide for those? You know, and I've thought about having a third just for that reason, so that she doesn't have to bear that burden by herself. Yeah. No, that was something I thought about as well when my son was still alive, that we were already thinking that. And um, to have another younger sibling grow up and do things around them too, to kind of immerse them. And now I've heard the same thing from friends too. The same thought because they have a fear that, you know, their oldest, they don't want them to have to, their oldest typically developing child, that they don't want them to have to bear the whole thing. Right. Right. Such heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. And gosh, dang it. It's stuff I never thought I'd have to think about. (laughs) No, no, we never really could ever possibly think this all up, could we? (laughs) No, no. And I've said before, I've caught myself saying, you know, I didn't sign up for this, but then it's like, I chose to have kids and I signed up for whatever came along with them. I just didn't expect this. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lottery. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get to uh, have experiences that, or have had experiences that others will never have the pleasure of having had though. Right, right. And I think it's just joyful and happy and fun in its own way. And I think picking out those moments and times and those little things that, like we said, I didn't appreciate the first time around, but holding her own bottle was huge and, and little things like that. You just have to appreciate them and find the joy in what we've been given. Yeah. What kind of therapies does Landry receive? So we re- or she receives weekly. We do physical therapy, occupational therapy. We have a speech therapist for just straight communication. We're doing a lot of sign right now. And we have a speech therapist who specializes in the AAC devices, the adaptive communication, and then vision therapy we see weekly and hearing therapy we see weekly. Twice a month, we see a speech therapist that specializes in feeding. So we do feeding therapy twice a month. And I say see, but right now everything is virtual. <laughs> so Every, Everything is? No one comes to your house? Nobody comes to our house right now. Part of that, I, I think there are some services that have started to begin back in person. I don't know how long it will stay that way. But Landry has such a respiratory risk that uh, both me and all, or her therapists haven't even felt comfortable coming to her house yet because they are out and about. They see so many other kids. Our PT actually works part-time in the hospital. So we've just chosen not to bring anybody into our home right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And and you are not alone in that boat, unfortunately. Right. 
And, you know, who knows? I don't, there's no end in sight right now. No, I don't really see one. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Um, it's been good in a lot of ways because of, of course, we don't have to expose her to, you think of, okay, seven therapists, they all see five kids in a day or whatever. That's so much exposure to everything out there. Well, you know, even aside from COVID, she was in the hospital last, last year for, we spent five weeks with even less than that. So it's just scary all around being cold and flu season. So we haven't had to give her that exposure, but it's like, okay, I'm every single therapist. You are, all, <laughs> you are everything. Yeah. Yeah. I had one of our therapists, she told me one day, she said, you really should be getting college credits for this. And I'm like, that's kind of how it feels. You should be if that would do you any good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what good does that Right, right. Maybe if I could get paid for it. That's I don't what know. I was thinking. I was like, yes, if you could get paid. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I think that provides me with a lot of hands on. It's not like for just one hour a week, I'm watching somebody else do things with her. I'm actually leading the session in that I'm the only one with my hands on her and working with her. And so I truly know what to go about the week doing until our next session. So there's there's a lot of good and some not so good too, mm. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your perspective and um, your world over there. (laughs) (laughs) It does not sound easy at this moment, but you are seemingly carrying it very gracefully. I appreciate that. I do try hard, but there's days when I don't feel like I accomplished that. And there's days when, you know, behind closed doors, it's not so pretty, but (laughs) we get through it. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the pandemic, what has the pandemic, has the pandemic presented any additional challenges for you guys? We had some very delayed important doctor's appointments in like the the first wave, the spring and into the summer. Not so much lately. We were really after the winter that we had with her last year, we were already very careful as far as you know, who we saw and what we did, at least during the the cold and typical cold and flu season. You were already acting like uh, people are acting now then. Yes, exactly. I, in fact, I think I've been washing my hands. (laughs) Right, right. We were already social distancing before it was cool. (laughs) But so as far as that goes, not a whole lot changed. Chandler is still, she's five. We waited a year on kindergarten. She'll go when she's six. It did kind of cut back on her preschool days a little bit. She's only going two days, whereas she was supposed to go five. So that has been a little bit difficult as, you know, back to where we were talking about balance. She had hasn't had as much of her own time to get out of the house and do her own thing. She's here for a lot of therapy sessions, but otherwise it, it hasn't been too, too drastic of a change. We're trying to get some inpatient things taken care of in the next few weeks before potentially we're not doing electric procedures or, or things like that. Again, um, like I said, I think before we started, we have a, a 24-hour EEG that we're trying to get get done. And then her adenoids are coming out. So I want to, I'm pushing for that before they say no elective procedures. If they go that route, I don't even know. Oh, that's interesting. Why are you, I, I, I'm Wonder why you're doing that. I have a guess. <laughs> the adenoids? Yeah. So we discovered very severe sleep apnea in Landry back early March. And then actually it's gone beyond sleep apnea. She requires 24-7 oxygen, even waking. 
it's not going to be a definite thing. We, her, nobody seems to think that her tonsils are her airway obstruction. Her sleep apnea, let me go back. Her sleep apnea is obstructive. And so we've done a bronchoscopy. Her airway is anatomically perfectly fine. No obstruction there. Everybody who has looked in her mouth at her tonsils does not seem to think that her tonsils are her obstruction. So we're kind of just checking off the last thing on the list and hoping that it's her adenoids. I don't want to get my hopes up and think that it's going to completely alleviate her need for oxygen, but I'm hopeful that it might help maybe at least day, daytime oxygen. And it's funny, that's another thing that I started ta- asking doctors about over a year ago. And I just thought, you know, there was a problem. She was always congested. She was always not breathing well. And it it took a year and a couple different doctors to finally say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take these out. And it's like I told Thank you. Thank you. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, even during her sleep study, she had a she had a terrible sleep study. We got directly admitted from it. We didn't even get to go home. And I told the the tech that did the test, I said, I I just know that her adenoids need to come out. And Sure enough, eight months later, they are. And part of that was COVID. Part of that was that was like March 6th. And then I think a week later, our state completely shut down. So part of that was out of anybody's control. But moms know things. <laughs> yeah. Have you, We I interviewed a, an airway orthodontist a little while back and she talked about that. Not with, um, you know, a child with CHAMP. But we discussed lots of the issues that often and misdiagnoses that often happen because of children not getting enough sleep. And the reason is because of what you just said. And 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 we discussed how a lot of doctors still, even ear, nose and throat doctors, you might go to them and they might not even look in the nose. And I was like, are you serious? They don't even look in the nose, an ear, nose and throat doctor. And she's like, absolutely, they don't. They're very, very serious. She's absolutely correct. And it was the craziest thing. Um, We saw one last fall. It was about this time last year. And we were seeing him more for for hearing purposes, just strictly ear. But I I brought up adenoids and tonsils to him and I brought up breathing. And I'm thinking, okay, we're at an ENT. This is who I need to talk to about this. And he, I mean, it was like one track mind. We were there for hearing and he didn't care about anything else. Needless to say, we didn't go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's specific ones who, who think a little bit more um, holistically about the whole thing and how it all, everything is connected and, and working with other uh, modalities, you know, referring you to a chiropractor, referring you the airway orthodontist, referring you to the ear, nose and throat and a specific one. <laughs> she also said something about them using, making sure that they use a 3D, it's some type of 3D imaging. Okay. You might want to listen to that episode. <laughs> yes, I, I do. I need to go back and listen to that. I will say we found a fabulous ENT. She's great. I love her. We're going to stick with her. Very happy. That's awesome. She's taking out adenoids, but she actually gave us the option of just taking out tonsils. She didn't think they were the op- the problem, but she gave us the option. I, I decided not to at this age. But I think so much of that is like this first one that we saw he just flat out said, well, we don't do that under two years old. And I'm like, there's so many blanket statements made and we don't have blanket statement kids. Like we don't have typical, 
okay, maybe you don't normally do this until they're two years old, but I'm telling you that my child can't breathe and I'd like you to take a look. Yeah, I think um, sometimes getting people to look past, well, this is what we always do. Okay, can you look anyway? (laughs) I had, my son had uh, tubes put in and my pediatrician was the first one who suggested it because he had a few ear infections, but more that she was like, I'm concerned. I don't want hearing to ever, you know, we're trying to get him to fast, you know, try and develop here. And we won't necessarily know if he's not hearing and, and it'd be better. And she's very, you know, into trying everything naturally first. But for him, she was like, I would rather, since he can't even sit up and have fluid drain, keep everything clear and be proactive about it so that you know that they're being able, they can actually hear. Yes. Yes. Hearing has been another big thing for us. We're still kind of navigating that. But yeah, I'm all about anything that can be done proactively and, you know, give them every opportunity to succeed. You know, our therapists always talk, and I agreed completely about, you know, assuming competence and assuming intentionality, but at the same time, don't sell them short. Don't we, they need every opportunity, every possible thing that can help them get ahead. So they do have that intentionality or they do have that competence down the road. Mm Mm-hmm. Where can our listeners learn more about the CHAMP1 gene mutation? So um, our website is very informative. It's champ1foundation.org. And like I said, the the family that went before us, their son, JJ, their names are Jeff and Cadis D'Angelo. They're in Florida. Fantastic. They did a great job getting us set up as a foundation. So there are a lot of facts and easy to understand information there. I share a lot personally, just about our personal journey through Instagram and, and the, my blog about Landry. But right now, that's that's pretty much it. Obviously, you can do like a, a Google search, but don't expect to find a whole lot. I would say as far as specific Champ One information, definitely go to our foundation website. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the Brain Possible community to be complete? The first thing when we got Landry's diagnosis was, you know, I told you I felt relief right away. And then the next couple of days, some of the heaviness kind of came in waves and, and we worked through some of that. But I think the first time I realized or really even said out loud, I have a special needs child. This is our life. This is not going away. I really tried to find community and friendship and, you know, likeness. I I just have to say that the special needs and the rare disease community is one of the nicest, most welcoming, inclusive communities that I have, have ever come across. And um, we're all in this together. And there's days where we think we can't put one foot in front of the other. But I think to see that there are other families doing the same thing and dealing with maybe not the same disorders, but the same rarity or the same just types of things in general makes it a lot more possible to to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how have you found the community? I 
have been really lucky to, there's three other champ one moms, specific moms that I've gotten really, really close to. And if it weren't for COVID, I know we all would have met in person by now. So there's those specific champ one families, but then I just did a lot of Instagram searching and reaching out to people. And I've, I've really found a lot of welcoming community on, on Instagram. I think it's a really great platform for that. And welcoming is just the only word or the, you know, the best way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people out there on social media. There weren't back when, well, at least I wasn't on there. Right. Right. I would say it's still probably relatively new. Yeah. My son would be 10 now. Um, So 10 years ago, I wasn't on Instagram. I, I do see a lot of really awesome mom bloggers, advocates, storytellers, and even influencers out there. Well, thank you for your time again. Thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to to see you and to know you. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you having me. I w- have been so happy and excited to be on here. And just obviously awareness with some of these rare diseases and champ one specifically is one of our biggest hurdles. And so I appreciate you hearing more about it and listening to our story. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the pleasure is mine. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today and that you learned something new. Do you have a question for Lindsay? Did anything in particular resonate with you? Do you have a story about advocating for your exceptional kiddo? We would love to hear it email us at info at thebrainpossible.com. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and share our podcast if that feels true for you. You may also consider visiting our website for more information on stories, therapies, and products that we think that you will love. As always, thank you for spending your precious time with us at The Brain Possible. See you next Tuesday.